Welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM, brought to you this week by Blue Apron. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you do not have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Stephen Hackett, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host and friend, Jason Snell. Hello, Stephen Hackett. Oh, I love it when professions of friendship happen in podcasts. It's the best. Pretty good. And you know what we bonded over? Space! Space! It's true. Well, we're here. Uh, uh, I'm going to see packed. you in like two days, which is exciting. Yeah, I know. We're not doing a we're not doing a show together while we're together because uh, we, we don't have to. Basically, <laughs> there's a lot of podcasts <laughs> happening. It's fortnightly. A lot of podcasts are happening when we see each other. But it, it will be nice. We'll do an eclipse high five. It'll be good. What is as an eclipse high five? Like you don't do a high five and say you did. Or like, one hand just passes right through. The <laughs> if it's total eclipse, oh man, high five. If it's a partial eclipse high five, then it just touches a little. Most of them are like that. I'm sort of nervous. Much more common. Hand going through someone else's hand, wondering how that would. Yeah, I I know, right? It's a it's one of the miracles of the universe. Um, (laughs) We have we have so much to talk about that we should probably get started. We have a ton of stuff this week. On a quieter week, we would spend more time on this, but it's not a quiet week. But we did not. I did want to mention because I like uh, anniversaries that end in zeros. Mm. Sputnik. Turned 60 years old this past week. Uh, there's a great two-part article on the Space Review. There'll be a link in the show notes about the background of Sputnik and the goals and how it was kind of put together. I didn't know any of this. I'm super interested now. Um, but it's kind of it's kind of wild to think that the you know this whole industry is only 60 years old. You know, we think about that in computing, kind of when the personal computer revolution happened. But you know. Space wasn't that much before. It only only six decades. What a milestone, right? To put a an an object, a metal ball, in orbit, in orbit, right? This is the, this is a huge, huge milestone, and it is funny to think about that. That that space as a as a, a place that people send things has only been going for sixty years. It really is amazing. And the, the article is great. I mean, it's all done by, like, all the math done by hand. Like, there's all these stories about, you know, why it looks the way it looked. And, and it really is a fascinating little read. Uh, so I, 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 for one, want to put a pin in that and come back to Sputnik at some point because I think it's it, yeah. there's a lot of stuff there. But we must move forward because we must. The, the gravitational waves are back, not back, detected yeah. again. So this is a story. We talked about it last time that the, uh, that LIGO, uh, laser, in- oh man, I shouldn't have started that. That second interferometer, word. interferometer. gravitational wave observatory. There you go. That's yeah. The second word gets me. They were going to have an announcement, and uh, they, along with a European-run observatory called Virgo, which uh, in yeah. Italy, detected the same wave on August 14th. So it's the first time that a gravitational wave has been spotted in, in multiple locations or kind of measured at once. I think as a as a reminder to talk about this before we get into the the discovery, these if you look at pictures of these they're huge L shaped tubes you know in the ground and they have a split laser that's fired down each leg of the L and they're basically mirrors at the other end and if a gravitational wave passes the observatory the mirror will be slightly out of place and the the time for the laser to return home will be slightly shorter or longer and so they're measuring the time it takes for the laser to leave and come back. And gra- gravitational wave will disrupt that that measurement. And we're talking like proton lengths of distance here. It's not like the mirror yeah. is moving two inches, right? This is uh, extremely 
uh, extremely small numbers. They are extremely uh, accurate measurements. And uh, both LIGO uh, locations and Virgo in Italy all spotted one on August 14th. Which is a great sign that it's a real thing, right? Because yes. that, and that's why they built the LIGO locations in Washington and, and Louisiana is because there's distance there, and and you know you're not going to get a false reading from, the, you know, something else, some interference movement of the Earth or whatever. Because the, the the idea of how do you measure this was this was a great bit of instrumentation, right? The idea how you measure something so small because it's a ripple in space time, like. Most of these things are incredibly small, very hard to detect because we don't notice them in our in our everyday life. That oh, there's a space time wave just passed through, right? It doesn't happen, and so they have to create this huge uh, experiment with these long distances just so that they can measure the difference in the in the in the perpendicular uh, streams of distance and see if that means that there's a wave. It's just it is it is amazing, and the fact that there are now three of these and they all picked up the same wave. Just it's a it's a huge accomplishment. It's one of the great. I mean, I, I'm not, I'm trying not to overhype it here, and yet at the same time, like this is a new kind of astronomy, never before seen, that actually teaches us real things about events that have happened in the universe. Pretty pretty incredible stuff. It it, it most definitely is. It's one of those things that it's it's sort of hard to talk about. It's sort of hard to like wrap your head around what this is, but the. The importance of it, and and like you said, the fact that all three spotted it, this is, really is like groundbreaking science going on today. Yeah, so the um, this is the first wave that Virgo in Italy dis- uh, discovered. Um, and having three different detectors in three different locations actually helps pinpoint where the signal came from where the original event came from because they can time when the wave arrived at the different observatories and then they can triangulate which is pretty cool so if what that means is we have a place to point our telescopes at if this is something that we think we might be able to see with a telescope um, like a couple of stars smashing into each other or whatever we could now actually like point at the location at the source of the gravitational waves theoretically and see what we can see there do you think that this is something that we're going to see uh, more of now that we have you know now that they've spotted in all three locations like you said virgo is the first time it spotted one do you expect we'll see more and more of this like i don't know um i don't know kind of what the next steps are past trying to catch what's causing these through a telescope yeah i I think that they're hoping that they'll have other results. This is the first, you know, these are massive black hole collisions that they're seeing. It's the first and most um, powerful kind of displacements that maybe you would notice if you think about, like, having a, the first infrared telescope or first X-ray or gamma ray observatory sort of thing where you suddenly see the bright bursts and you're like, whoa, what is that? And then later you get some more nuance about what else you can see with that. I suspect some of that's going on here. These instruments may also be, you know, they're the first ones. So they may also be looked on in the future as being primitive, that mm. there may be, you know, the the, the source, you know, next time it might be take this to the moon or something and do have it be like a huge distance and then much more refined measurements of gravitational waves. But for now, I, I imagine they will, they will learn more. There will be more signals that, that will start to tell them like how common are these black hole collisions? What do we know about them? How are they different? Are there other sorts of um, ripple causing effects that we can detect 
and what are those. So I think we'll get more here, but it's so early that that one of the tantalizing things is sort of not really knowing what they're going to get. But now that they've got these three online, and apparently the um, there are there's other stuff that they're they're going over. Like there were this announcement was made, but they they may have other things they want to make announcements about, and they just haven't done it yet. And that's also exciting. It's it's cool. I kind of get the feeling maybe it's sort of like the exoplanet thing was. You kind of get a first first couple and kind of get the the mechanism in which you measure them sort of down, and then it unlocks a whole a whole world of of info. I hope so. I mean, the the alternative view would be that this can only measure the most massive things, and what we're going to get is a whole lot of black hole collisions from all over the universe, many many billions of years ago. And that's it. Um, I hope not, though. I hope it's. I hope it's much more than that. I hope it is the the beginning of this new phase. Because really, yeah. I mean, gravity using gravity as a as a, a way to observe things, using ripples in space time to do astronomy, is uh, who knows, right? I mean, this is this is an, a medium that has not yet been explored by astronomers. It's pretty exciting. So let's let's change gears a little bit. Uh, Elon Musk w- spoke uh, at IEC. It was this last week now, talking about the yeah. interplanetary transport system. This is the grown-up name for the BFR, the big yeah. fill-in-the-blank rocket. Uh, I'm just going to refer <laughs> to it as the BFR because I find that to be a hilarious name for a platform. Yeah, this is all stuff. Well, most of the stuff we've seen before out of SpaceX, but it's they're sort of refining their vision and refining their plan. This is a scaled-down version of the BFR than what we saw last time. It's narrower, only has 31 rocket engines as opposed to 42. And I think the big news here is that Musk is saying they've sort of figured out how to do this in a practical manner as far as how do you pay for the BFR, how do you kind of roll it into the rest of the stuff the company is doing. Yeah, it's smaller. They scaled it down. It's it's I think nine meters, which is actually fits with other. Apparently, like there were engineering challenges going beyond that that are are solved by this. It's got thirty one engines instead of forty two. It's still a huge. I mean, BFR. It is a huge fill in the blank rocket. Um, but yeah, he's. It, it feels like some reality got applied to the announcement of last year. I'm not sure how much, but some reality got applied to last year, and it's more. It's meant to be more practical now. So this is Elon Musk kind of backing off a little bit on some of his more outrageous claims and doing more. You know, the company's doing more work to get this in a, a place that they feel is more realistic. Although, I would say there's still. A real question about what of this is is real and what of this is not, because as we've said on numerous occasions on this show, despite both of us being very impressed with SpaceX and what it's been able to actually accomplish, there is a gap between proclamations of what SpaceX is going to do and when it's going to do it and reality that seems to be driven by Elon Musk, who who uh, he, he even referred to it during his presentation about how he. Um, you know, some of this stuff is aspirational, but at the same time, he hates to uh, when when he says we're going to have people on Mars or we're going to land things on Mars in five years. Um, he says, I know that that seems really aggressive and aspirational, but at the same time, I think to myself, five years is a long time. I don't want to wait five years. <laughs> right? So I he, like he had it. He had it right out there. Yeah. So, so, so let's talk about some of the logistics here. So. SpaceX has the Falcon 9. That's the rocket we know now. They launched one yesterday. They have another one tomorrow. 
Uh, they have Falcon Heavy, which is supposed to be launching by the end of the year, its first flight. We're going to put that in air quotes because it's that's been the case for a while now that it's just around the corner. Supposedly, it's very close around the corner. And what Musk is laying out is that the, by the time BFR is ready for production, Falcon 9 would basically go into some sort of like fleet management mode. They would have so many of these stage one boosters that they've recovered that they have a steady supply for customers who still want that, but that BFR would take over tasks done by Falcon 9, uh, Falcon Heavy, and and they would kind of absorb everything into into BFR, which is an interesting thing. You know, I think yeah. when, when this came out, a lot of people were like, <laughs> oh, they're pulling the plug on Falcon 9. This is years away, right? I mean, yeah. Falcon Heavy's not off the ground yet. BFR is still on the whiteboard. I mean, they're doing some stuff with the Raptor motors. They've been doing a lot of test burns of those, but it's a ways away, right? This isn't a 2019 thing. And you could see, I can see in my mind how this would work out. You have all these stage one Falcon 9s. They're available, you know, relatively cheaply for people who want to fly on those. They're just stacking up, right? You might as well use them and, and then sort of migrate everything to BFR. And what I wonder about this is if it's sort of overkill. That is, is the BFR really the right choice for putting up GPS satellite or servicing ISS yeah. when these other vehicles can do it for similarly less money? My gut feeling is that this is a this is entirely overkill, and it's not a realistic view of what the market for space access is going to be. Now, I think here too, Elon Musk is thinking big and saying if we had cheap access to space, relatively speaking, with huge payloads, then maybe that changes what we put in space. But I think that's what it would have to happen, because he said, like, it could launch satellites. The BFR could launch satellites. And I don't know. Um, I I saw somebody on, I think on Twitter as it was happening, said that, like, the size of the payload capacity of the BFR, it could, like, absorb all satellite capacity Mm. in a few launches. I, I forget what the number was, but like it could carry so much that it could just launch all the satellites for a given year um, in a couple in a couple launches or a handful of launches. And you could do that, although that sounds really complicated. And you'd have to get everything lined up, and and then the risk is that much huger if there's a, a failure. But um, you could also change the way people approach satellite launches and maybe there are larger objects that get put up there you know larger heavier objects than we currently do because of the economics of it i don't know but it it does feel a little bit like a guy who wants to build a rocket to carry people to the moon and mars and elsewhere in the solar system and trying to find a commercial justification for it when in fact and you know maybe attached that he had a, a a hilarious um image that caused laughter in the crowd of um the bfr uh main stage attached to the international space station and it like it dwarfs the international space station right it's enormous it's but he said the shuttle was really big too when it attached to the international space station and it looked kind of funny um and and i did think like that's really interesting once you say what if we took this thing up to the International Space Station or its successor, whatever it is, and it's a large space. So you could you could use it 
Um, you could leave it up there for a while mm-hmm. and uh, you could do a big major crew transfer with it. You could leave one of those up there potentially and have it uh, and, and allow yourself to increase the number of people on the space station because of the size of the the uh, the, the the capsule, the, the vehicle. So who knows? But uh, it does feel a little bit to me like him trying to sell people on the idea that it has other applications when that's a real question mark versus the way it'll really work is if he can get funding from governments essentially to use this thing to take people and maybe you know take people and and objects and stuff to the moon and mars instead yeah it's one of those things where he i mean this plan is like this rocket is built initially or outlined not built not built not built uh designed for missions to Mars. And he sort of has backfilled that yeah. with lunar stuff, which makes sense in the current political climate. But then to say, also, it can do all the stuff that this much smaller vehicle, like, I get that they can only produce so many rockets and they need to focus, but it feels like a weird trade-off to move into this 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 vehicle at this point. But Yeah, I, it also, I think, is, is Musk's strategy to just keep the ball rolling. And to just say, all right, here's what's happening. Uh, we've got we've got Falcon 9. We're heavy is going to go. This is what's next after that. We're going to keep it rolling. We're going to keep increasing capacity. Trust us. Believe in us. Invest in us. Give us government contracts. Um, you know, I, I think we've talked about this before. There's a little bit of a planting a flag kind of thing uh, in front of the current administration saying, you know, we're private uh, private company that's doing this um, because I think they, you know, I think Musk believes that the government would be better off, the U.S. government would be better off paying him money to fly things than go through NASA's process. I, I mean, I, I really do believe that, mm-hmm. that like he would much rather NASA be an organization that is training astronauts and buying rides from Elon Musk, right? That's what he would prefer and not have, and his competition, you know, is is not just uh, other commercial, but it's it's contractors who are getting huge contracts to build giant rockets for NASA directly. So, you know, I think there's, there's politics and cultivating his market it all going on here plus of course elon musk's ego he wants to be somebody who is cited in the history books as 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 being a space pioneer and leading people to mars for the first time and uh you know and so he's trying to kind of navigate all of those things i'll point out by the way nerd side uh, side note in the latest episode of star trek discovery which aired on uh, on sunday there's one of those classic star trek moments where they list people who are real and people who are not real to get you to believe their science fiction premise and they cite um they cite famous pioneers in in uh, in space and Elon Musk is mentioned in that group <laughs> as a historical figure. Wow. And I thought, well, he's got to be happy about that. Um, but, you know, I do believe that that's, you know, that's part of what motivates him here. But also it's very expensive and he needs money and he wants people to think of SpaceX and to say they're capable of doing it. So that's all going on here. It's, fa- it's really fascinating, right? Because it's commerce and ego and wanting to be, I mean, ego, including being in the history books and politics. And it's all kind of mushed together whenever Elon Musk talks about what SpaceX is planning. Yeah. So I think I think the rest of as far as like destination stuff is basically in line with with where he was. Wants to send a ship 
to Mars. And he changed the time frame. Like yeah. it's 2022 to land two rockets on Mars. One BFR capsule landing on Mars. If they if they even accomplishment at, at any point at this point, it would be the heaviest object that we've landed on the surface of Mars. It's hard to land on Mars. They're, they're, they are, to their credit, really good at coming, bringing these things in for, for landings, right? Because they do it on Earth mm-hmm. and they've done it many, many times now. Mars, the dynamics are different. The atmosphere is thinner, but it's still thick enough that they have to do a re-entry. There's, there's lots of stuff going on there, but I do think that they've got a lot of skill in this. It, but still, it would be the most difficult landing of material on Mars yet if they were to accomplish it. And he sort of says, we're going to do it in five years with two of these things. Now, you know, I feel like it's much more likely that SpaceX is going to be able to put hardware on Mars successfully than people on Mars successfully in the near term. Because once people are involved, it gets a lot harder, as SpaceX has found out, because SpaceX rockets have still not yet carried humans. You know, they have not yet been certified as safe enough to fulfill NASA's requirements to put people on those rockets. So that's... That's a much harder story than them putting, you know, so I, I'm, I'm more inclined to believe Elon Musk that in 20, in the, in the 2020s, SpaceX might land, um, their, their rockets on their ships on Mars and maybe even do some testing of, you know, some, uh, trying to build up a fuel source or something like that. And maybe even take one of them back off then and, uh, and send it back into Mars orbit or return it to Earth or whatever they want to do. I'm much more inclined to believe that than I am, unfortunately, to believe send, that they're going to be able to send people in 2024. Yeah, I I agree with you on that. They did they did talk about at the very end of the the talk. He and I kind of wish that 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 this almost hadn't been there because it it, it feels so different compared to the other stuff yeah. but the idea this is a pure flight of fancy from elon musk that he wanted to put in there because he thought wouldn't it be cool it be if cool? yeah using bfr for basically on earth travel so you could take off in new york and you would go up and you would come down in sydney you know a couple of hours later uh, and building this entire network of city point to point city to city space travel which feels way way more difficult than even putting a crew on mars to me like they're the political and systematic hurdles to make this happen seem impossible to overcome this really feels like hey wouldn't it be cool if with uh with very little grounding and it feels so weird to me because the talk felt aggressive in time frame but pretty reasonable right i can see the bfr going to the moon you know, servicing the Deep Space Gateway, going to Mars, doing all this stuff. But you're talking about point-to-point travel on Earth just feels way out of left field. And I, I think I think a lot of people were a little taken aback by it, uh, that it was at the end of this talk that otherwise felt, at least for Elon Musk, pretty reasonable. Yeah, he he did have his one slide about the moon base Alpha, basically making a Space yeah. 1999 reference for those who don't who are too young to remember that really weird, not, I think, very good 1970s science fiction show. Um, but, you know, I I read that as being that his heart's not in it because he spent all this time talking about, oh, well, we could just revolutionize travel on Earth by having everybody take rockets everywhere, which seems like a, um, 
Yeah, I mean, there's embedded in that, too, is this feeling that, well, these rockets are reusable, but it's unclear how reusable they are. Can they be reused thousands of times like an airplane or like a 100 times? And that totally changes the economics of it. So that's that's there. And it does distract from his stories about maybe that was the point from his stories about Mars and the moon. Um, I am surprised that he didn't do more talking about the moon. Me too. Um, I think I think he's offended by the idea that we would go back to the moon instead of going to Mars. Hmm. It's it's like, yeah, we could go to the moon. Sure, we could do that. Um, when it seems like, yeah, the political will right now has shifted to going back to the moon and that one of the arguments is, all right, going back to the moon is a good staging process for us going to Mars. And I think that's sort of maybe he buys that, but he doesn't love that idea. He he really believes we should just go and go in the next seven years and, and, and take everybody to Mars and and just do it. So that that was kind of fascinating to see him just be like, yeah, here's a slide with the moon. We could do that. Whatever. And then and then he moved on. Yeah, it's it's particularly interesting because he so long has talked about the need for humanity to be an inner planet species. And the moon is not far enough away if something happens to the Earth, right? And Yeah, well, and it's got nothing. I mean, got, the, yeah, the resources are there. limited and there's no atmosphere at all and all that. Yeah. Whereas Mars has some more some more stuff going on. Right. Um, but, but yeah, it's... Um, you know, I, I think he could potentially make a big name for himself by getting humans back to the moon, too. But um, but his sights, his, his sights are higher. And so this is that question, too, of how much will he compromise in order to get money to fund oh, I think what he wants be to do? All over lunar missions. <laughs> I think they're mm-hmm. going to be there a bunch. I think that's right. I think that's right. I, I think that they want to be they want to be a part of this. But I think also I would say the Mars stuff is potentially a hedge, right? It's potentially all right. You guys are going to go to the moon. All right, we're going to work on Mars capability, and you come back to us, or there's a change in administrations, and suddenly the priorities change, and SpaceX is like, yeah, we got it, we're on it. You know, I think there's hedging going on here too. It's fascinating. So we'll see. I just hope we go somewhere. That's the thing. I, I, if you had told me as a kid, because we talked about Sputnik earlier, 60 years since Sputnik, um, 12 years after Sputnik, human human beings were standing on the surface of the moon. 12 years later. It's now been 50 years later, 48 years later. And that's it, right? In all of the time since then, we spent a lot of time in low Earth orbit. And, and that's it in terms of human spaceflight. I mean, obviously, there's been a lot in terms of probes, but in terms of human spaceflight, if you told me as a kid that we wouldn't even like we wouldn't even go back to the moon until the 2020s, like said to said to Jason at at 10 years old in 1981, wearing his space shuttle T-shirt and being really excited about space. Right. You had said, yeah, humanity won't even set foot on another body in the solar system until you're. Um, in your 50s or 60s it'd be so depressing and that's where we are like i don't think it's realistic for us to be uh, on the moon uh, you know until maybe the 2020s let alone mars and Mm -hmm. that's uh that's super disappointing but i do like the fact that we seem to be pointing in that direction now if we can get our act together that people i think if the u.s doesn't do it that somebody else probably china is going to do it do it is going to land people on the moon in the next decade but I would uh, I would really like it if we could if we could follow like Elon Musk's aspirations and get people further out. But we'll see. And it's more grist for liftoff podcast in the meantime. It is. Well, let's talk about the moon thing. Uh, but first, you want to tell us about our sponsor this week? 
Sure. This episode of Liftoff is brought to you by Blue Apron, the number one recipe delivery service. It's got the freshest ingredients. Its mission is to make incredible home cooking accessible to everyone while supporting a more sustainable food system. They've got high standards for their ingredients. Less than $10 a meal gets you seasonal recipes along with fresh, high-quality ingredients to make delicious home-cooked meals in 40 minutes or, or less. We are at the end of summer and beginning of fall, and we've been getting all of these great meals that have ingredients that are very much the the uh, the, the vegetables and the fruits uh, that are are ready. It's like a lot of corn and um, and uh, squash and stuff that are the late summer, early fall vegetables. So you can see that they're taking advantage of the season with the recipes that they create for you. Every meal comes with a recipe card. It's easy to do it. You can make it yourself from scratch in your home in 40 minutes or less. Pre-portioned ingredients. All you really need to have is like salt and some olive oil in your house and uh, like a, a pan. It doesn't really require a lot. So if you're not somebody who thinks of yourself as somebody who cooks food, Blue Apron will take care of all of that stuff for you. And there's uh, very little food waste because they ship you the exact amount of each ingredient required for a recipe. We've been using this for a couple of years now, and it has really diversified our dinners at home. We don't have as much of that frustrating like moment before we go to the store of like, oh, what are we going to eat this week? Uh, we have a couple meals for our entire family that are just taken care of because we know the Blue Apron box is going to come on Wednesday for us and deliver what we're uh, what we're going to have. And we've chosen what those meals are because you go on Blue Apron's website or you use their app, and they can surprise you if you want. But you can also go through and see what's coming up in upcoming weeks and say, I want that. I don't want that. And choose the stuff that fits your family's taste because everybody's got their own opinions. Uh, Among the meals that you could get, you could get cheesy chicken and black bean enchiladas with salsa verde. I had that. It was really good. Shrimp marinara with spaghetti, spinach, and parsley. I didn't have that, and I'm feeling sad. Maple gravy, gravy smothered pork chops with stewed collard greens and sweet potatoes, or spiced cauliflower and pepper with jasmine rice and cilantro yogurt sauce. So many different options. No weekly commitment. If you're not feeling good about a, a current week's suggestion, you just say, don't send me any that week, and then you won't get charged. And they'll move on to the next week, and you can look at the recipes again. So it's really easy. Couldn't be easier to change your menu menu at home and get some fresh cooked meals in your life. You'll get three meals free when you buy it and free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash liftoff. You're going to love how good it feels and tastes and smells. Let me tell you, smells to create those meals at home in your own kitchen with Blue Apron. Blueapron.com slash liftoff. Thank you to Blue Apron for supporting liftoff. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. So also in the news is uh, United States Vice President Mike Pence, who you remember has restarted the National Space Council, which hasn't been a thing since uh, I think Bush was the last president who had a space council. First Bush, right? Uh, yeah, I think. Yeah, maybe. It's I don't been even a while. think W. It's been a long it's time. It's been a long time. And the the idea here is, you know, it's a it's a body of government officials. The NASA administrators on it. They had a bunch of a bunch of you know. Boeing and ULA, those sorts of people on this council to help shape uh, public policy on on America's space program. So on October 5th, they finally got around to doing something about this. This has been talked about for months. And they, they had an event. Uh, Pence stood in front of the Spatial Discovery at the National Air and Space Museum and Basically, his his point of recommendation is that the U.S. will lead the return of humans to the moon for long-term exploration 
followed by human missions to Mars and other destinations. So a couple of quotes here, just so we have them out there. We'll, we will return American astronauts to the moon, not only to leave behind footprints and flags, but to build the foundation we need to send Americans to Mars and beyond. The moon will be a stepping stone, a training ground, a venue to strengthen our commercial and international partnerships as we refocus America's space program towards human space exploration. So this isn't a re- – it is a replacement to the journey to Mars from the Obama administration, but they are inserting the moon first. And in all of his language, it is about the moon as, like I said, a stepping stone, a training ground to get to Mars. It's not – replacing Mars as the destination. Now, what it does do is it pushes Mars out on the time frame, but it is a it is an alteration to that plan that I still, I still think eventually ends with a crew on Mars. Now, whether that SpaceX beats NASA to it or NASA's there first, I mean, all those are unanswered questions. But in the immediate future, it is a, it is a, a big change in direction for the, for the agency. Yeah, absolutely. Um this is, uh, I mean, we've talked about it before. There's this back and forth where it's like, the moon, no Mars. No, the moon, no Mars. And it seems like they're like, okay, moon first, then Mars. That's what we're going to do. We got a, we got an outline here, um, which is great. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's clearer than we were before, although this is just, a, uh, this is just a, a, a first step. What happens now, though? Yeah, so there, there are a couple sort of immediate things. The council asked NASA's acting administrator, Robert Lightfoot, to provide a budget for a lunar mission in 45 days. That seems fast to me, but I, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe those mm-hmm. numbers are already there. I, I really don't know. Um, but there's a lot of that sort of issue. There's a lot of organizational issues taken care of. So NASA's current plans call for the first crewed SLS Orion mission to take place in 20, 20, 2021 or 2022. Um, that doesn't seem to be changing. There's still a big push for SLS out of this council, but at the same time, he's saying there's, there's opportunity for commercial partners as well. So, um, you know, Falcon heavy for low earth orbit BFR for lunar missions. I expect we'll see those players there as well. There's also a big conversation to be had about the deep space gateway. Remember this the sort of space station plan for cislunar space uh-huh. that exists in the NASA budget now as basically an R&D program. There's there's no funding for hardware. There's no funding for like an actual mission. And so maybe that would be part of the 45-day, you know, deadline, or maybe that comes afterwards. But I expect we'll see much more about DSG in the coming weeks and months because that is a – that's a big step in, towards this. Um, and then there, there's – there'll need to be concrete plan and funding for lunar missions. So – if SLS is built and Orion is built and it can take us there, there's still no – there's nothing past that yet, right? Okay, this hardware can get humans to the moon. Uh, then what? And a huge part of that is funding. They've got to pull that funding from somewhere. Uh, that's got to come together from Lightfoot and others. So I think up front there's just a lot of organizational stuff to outline what this actually means and then figuring out, okay, if this is going on, is NASA's budget going to increase? Are they going to cut other things? Um, it, it really wasn't talked about, but this language about refocusing on human space exploration, like does this stuff come at a cost to uh, robotic missions that are that are mapped out? We've talked a lot on the show about we're getting ready to enter a dark period of, of outer solar right. system exploration. 
And my feeling is, and I, I don't know this, but my feeling is that that is going to be the case for a long time, that if NASA fo- refocuses on putting humans on Mars, then this other stuff may fall by the wayside a little bit. Uh, I don't know if that's good or bad, but I think my guess is that's kind of where this is headed. Yeah, I I don't know either, um, and that is a concern. Uh, certainly, it's a concern that uh, Earth science is going to get given oh, a yeah. short shrift it, by it, this administration. No doubt. <laughs> yeah, but uh, the question is, yeah, will there be – because, you know, one way that American leadership – and I know you're going to talk about this in a little bit – American leadership in space has been happening is with all of these missions that, yes, yes there are sometimes international partners and sometimes they're major international partners, um, sometimes not. But American leadership in space in terms of – uncrewed missions in space probes is basically america is dominant it's like either america for the most part there there are a few other missions but like the vast majority of missions and the driving forces and missions there there the america american space program is a driving force there are lots of other international participants i don't want to give them short shrift but you could not argue that anybody but America is leading its way, at least up to this point, in terms of exploring the solar system. The, the, the Will this administration see that as important, or is that just all propeller head stuff, and what they really want is boots on the, boots on the soil, boots on the ground, on other, and other planets, and people in space? And that's, that's a real question. I think that the Deep Space Gateway is an interesting idea, right? The idea here is basically, what if they built an international space station, essentially, um, around the moon, in an orbit around the moon. And the idea there is you get to deal with um, being further away from the Earth. You're out of low Earth orbit. It's potentially a platform that you can then use to descend to the lunar surface, but it comes before you have to build a lunar base or anything like that. And it can be used as this gateway, as a way station. You can link up with that and join things up and, and, and do that. And then also potentially it, it it's a, uh, a training ground for having a space station around Mars, which is one of the concepts that we've mentioned on this show before, where maybe you don't land people on Mars because that's a lot harder at first but you have them in orbit around in a space station or on one of the Martian moons, and you're having them remote pilot much more sophisticated um, vehicles at that mm-hmm. point because there's no um, minutes of lag. You can drive them live basically across the surface instead of what we do now, which is send up commands and then wait a day as they take them and they move forward and they send back what they did. Um, and then you plan the next day's missions and you put that in and then it goes and does the next day's missions. So um, a lot of interesting possibilities here. But again, as you and I have said for a while now, what are the concrete plans? Like, it would be nice if if this would get firmed up where they said here, even if some of that, the further out you go is a little hazy, it would be nice if they said, the, these are the missions that build the deep space gateway. This is what happens next, which is we, we send people down to the moon. Um, this is what happens after that to give us some, some idea of the vision here. And I don't know if we've got that yet, but it's possible that they will be working on that. And that's good because we need one of the reasons that everything keeps shifting direction is because nothing is happening that's above the waterline. Right. It's it's much harder to say, no, we're not going to go to the moon when you've been launching missions and have a base around, you know, uh, uh, orbiting around the moon. And your your plan, you've already built the thing that's going to take people down to the surface of the moon. Harder to change direction then. But right now, everything's in this nebulous state where um, nothing happens. There was, I think there was some of that already going on, right? Like the, we talked about months ago, Journey to Mars being 
sort of wishy-washy and sort of a a plan without much of a um of a concrete sort of big beginning point and i feel like we're kind of back there again um i did want to talk a little bit though about the sort of the attitude that pence brought to this mm-hmm. and, and you know you, you you brought it up a second ago about it's it's very much the make america great thing again right like so he says i'm gonna I'm quote him america seems to have lost its edge in space he claims citing as evidence continued reliance on uh, russia for transporting us to to ISS again, commercial crews not ready, uh, and he wants to develop uh, quote counter space capabilities um, to deal with China and Russia, and I just don't buy it. Like I just I don't view the American space program as having lost its its edge compared to everyone else. And yes, China's doing stuff, Russia's doing stuff, uh, European Space Agency is doing stuff. We partner with yep, some India, of those Japan, sure. Yeah, and we do. We partner with some of those uh, agencies, and we don't with others. But I, I still think America has the lead here. And even if we didn't, I'm not sure that it really matters. It feels very much like a trying to drum up the idea of the space race and the Cold War. And I just don't think we're there anymore. Um, I think that he he thinks, and I've heard this from other people too, that there is a public perception that after the shuttle, nothing is happening in terms of the American space program, that they shut it down, right? I, I've talked to people who have said this, like, well, we, you know, ever since the shuttle program, there's nothing going on in space. It's like, well, well, that is absolutely not true. But there is a public perception of that. And I think it comes down to the fact that we don't have our people riding our rockets to even the International Space Station. You know, we don't have our spaceships. We have other people's spaceships that we take to our destination. And that's a, you know, that is a black eye for the com- the country that thinks that it is the leader in space. And relying on Russia, which has been the competitor in space for so long, to get people into space. It, you know, yeah, this is that's all true. But at the same time, it's not like there hasn't been a plan to get American space capability back up and running. That is what commercial crew is all about. Um, it, it, you know, it would be nice if it had happened faster. But um, not to suggest that this is what's going to happen, but when commercial crew happens in the next couple of years, you know that the, this is going to be a political talking point that they even even though the previous administration was already setting people on this path even though the administration before that is the one that canceled the space shuttle um the current administration will be able to take credit for restoring american uh, astronauts being sent on american rockets into yep. space you know and restoring our the greatness of our uh, our space program so um, yeah, he's he's doing some sandbagging here. Is what's happening. Mm-hmm. He he is he is talking down the current state of affairs because he knows what's coming. But um, I will say that leveraging American um, belief that we've lost our edge in space to get people behind funding space missions is not necessarily bad politics. No. No, no, I don't think it is. Um, I just don't know if I buy it. Like, I see what he's doing, and I think, I mean, if you look at, if you take this example and broaden it out to the administration on a bunch of different levels, it works for them. 
uh, and I think it will work yeah, say, here. Say that America, say that America is terrible, and that they, and then, and, and that they are going to come in and fix it. That is the strategy from the campaign slogan. On is the the implication. I'm going to try very hard not to get too political here, except in terms of space politics. But I will say the implication of a slogan like "Make America Great Again" is that America is not great anymore; that we lost it. And that we got to get it back. That is the fundamental implication of that campaign slogan. And it is the premise of the administration. Mike Pence's comments here are perfectly in line with that, which Mm -hmm. is we lost it and we're going to get it back now. That is so, you know, this is there. And and as you point out, it's kind of BS because we lost it because the space shuttle program who can we blame for the space shuttle program? We can blame, um, we can blame Nixon. We can probably not blame Carter because he wanted to kill it and got talked out of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, can we blame Reagan and Bush and Clinton and Bush and Obama for the space shuttle? I guess we could blame all of them because it's been going on since 1972 or whatever. Um, it had, and, and Bush made the decision that it was too dangerous. <laughs> to keep running it after we lost a second space shuttle it was too dangerous and then like what was our capacity going to be our human space flight was entirely put into the shuttle but commercial crew a very american approach to this right which is to to get uh commercial uh american companies to ferry people into space has been spinning up and there was going to be a gap and that gap could have been plastered over with unsafe shuttle missions that you hope you don't lose astronauts and the Bush and Obama administrations decided that that was not going to happen. So, um, you know, so yeah, it is BS in that way where it is just politics coming in to say, yeah, we really, like I said, it's sandbagging. We really suck right now because then any positive movement at all, we can take the credit for. And politicians do that. And that's just the fact of, 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 uh, where we are. I, I, the bright side for me is just that, um, we know those things are coming, and potentially this could be used to get more attention paid to space. Um, like, let's take advantage of the fact that people are unsettled by the fact that uh, America isn't putting people up on our own rockets anymore to fund human spaceflight better. I'm, I'm okay with that, honestly, if that's what it takes to focus people, but it's not a realistic view of where we are. Yeah, well said. I, I think we're on the same page. I think the yeah. I think that I think that does it. I feel like it's a news-heavy fortnight, but um, I think what's going all, on? Yeah. If we, if, if this is this is one of those where if we if we had uh, broken the glass box and become weekly for a week, it would have made sense. We had so much to talk about, so it's good. I like it. I, I like it. We we didn't do any um, any in our uh, human space flights of the past series, but we'll we bring back Gemini. Uh, in the next fortnight, yes. I think. But there's just there's a lot going on, and 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 trying to get a sense of where uh, where the future of of space stuff is going is um, it's really interesting. Whether it's Elon Musk or it's NASA and the new administration, and if they will confirm a new administrator, that would be helpful too. I suspect <laughs> all this stuff um, is bubbling out there. So very interesting times. Plus, you know, gravitational waves just for kicks. Yeah, just just throw it in there, a little cherry on top. Just toss it. Yeah, interesting times. If you want to find links throughout the stuff we've talked about, you can do that on our website, relay.fm slash liftoff slash 57. You can get in touch with us there. You can follow the the Tumblr. We post uh, space links in between episodes of, at uh, liftoffpodcast.space. 
You can find us on Twitter. Jason is at jsnell, J-S-N-E-L-L. And you can find me there as I-S-M-H. So until our next Fortnite, Jason, say goodbye. Bye, everybody. Adios. Adios.